Well, now one for the history lovers among you, the little-known stories of New Zealand's past, like the survivors of the wrecked General Grant, who spent 18 months on sub-Antarctic islands waiting for rescue, or the burlesque dancers who horsewhipped a newspaper editor who impugned their character, or the plans for a two-week service by airship between England and New Zealand. These stories have been researched by the retired journalist Tom Clark and compiled in a new book, Our Untold Stories, Extraordinary Tales from New Zealand's Past. Tom's with us to explain how the book has its roots in 1983 with his Today in History, New Zealand uh, service to radio stations around the country. Tom, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me on your programme. It'll be a lovely flashback for you to be talking on the wireless again. (laughs) <laughs> I sometimes use the phrase wireless and it does raise a few eyebrows because most people, or modern folk, don't understand the term, I don't think. I know, but um, people do. People get it. Um, it was the wireless back in the day, uh, and even in the 80s we called them that. What was, the, what was the origin? Just take us back to compiling your Today in History New Zealand programme. Some, some listeners will remember them, uh, the series, and what your sources were, what your brief was too, Tom. Okay, it's actually um, National Radio was one of my, one of my best customers back in those days. I started it. I I have a long background in radio. I began in broadcasting in 1966 originally, um, and at the time, the Today in History features all came from overseas. Uh, they were provided by AAP and uh, companies like Reuters, and there was no local Today in History New Zealand. So I decided in the uh, early 80s to start and compile such uh, 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 a collection of uh, items. And the the idea was to sell it to radio stations. A lot of the radio stations, of course, were independent in those days, and their announcers liked to have things to be able to drop into the program, like, did you know in this day in 1842, such and such happened. So that's how it started. Uh, National Radio was one of my very... Um, uh, staunchest supporters, uh, Wayne Mullet, uh, he went on using it for years and years and years. And the idea was basically just to put together an interesting collection of the things that have happened in our past, a lot of which um, get forgotten. So that was the, the genesis of the idea. And you've kept doing it. And part two of the question was, where do you source much of this? Because there's a lot of it, and there was over, the t- over time and still in the book. There absolutely is a lot, and um, there's, there's thousands and thousands of uh, items that I have recorded. Uh, yes, yeah, so it started in 1983, and it's become a little bit of a, a, a an obsession over those years, and I've just continued to do it. And you, I find um, snippets of interesting things from our past in all sorts of unusual places, some of them even um, from family histories, from family legends, uh, like the Wahini Whalers um, that we might get to talk about a little bit later. Well, let's... Um, I was going to say, let's dive into them now as a first example. Well, the Wahine Whalers, my, my wife has a family connection to John Howell, who was in, uh, a pioneering whaler um, in Riverton, Aparima, as it was back then, Jacobs Creek um, in, in Southland. Um, so that's where this story started. And um, uh, John Howell uh, owned um, a whaling station based at Riverton, and it was decided... Um, there were very few Europeans and, and uh, very few, in fact, no European women in the area. So it was decided that uh, John should marry um, a local Maori woman. Um, and it was felt that that would uh, improve relations between uh, Europeans uh, and local Maori. So it was 
decided that he would uh, marry Kohikawi Patu, who came from um, Rarotoka. Uh, that's um, today known as uh, Centre Island. It's about midway between Riverton and Stewart Island. Um, so they got married um, in um, 1837. They got married. They decided when their first child was born, John, um, not John, um, sorry, his name's just gone out of my mind. When their first child was born, she wanted to take her child, the child back and show it off to um, her parents, as you would do at Rarotoka. So they, they set off in a whale boat. And whale boats, they were, they were enormous uh, clinker-built uh, boats rowed by um, five rowers with a six-person uh, on a steering oar. Um, so they set off, but instead of having um, men rowing the boat, they had Wahidi rowing the boat. And they were halfway across uh, towards uh, Rarotoka Island uh, when somebody spotted a whale. And the, the Maori women were uh, extremely anxious that they should go and capture the whale. Um, John Hell uh, was not very keen on the idea because of the inexperienced rowers. But however, um, they finally talked him into it. So they set off after uh, the whale and uh, John Hell duly um, uh, speared it with the, uh, with the harpoon and they dragged it back to um, Riverton, to the whaling station at Riverton. And uh, it was said uh, that the, the whale the oil and so on recovered from it was valued at 500 pounds at that time. So that's the, the type of, um, and that, that story was passed down through my wife's family uh, and f- has finished up in the book. I can announce that the first child was a boy named George Robert Howell, born in 1838 or 1839. He lived in uh, Riverton right through to the 30s. He died in the 1930s. Goodness me. Uh, now the teaser that we put out earlier about the burlesque girls who did not like did not like having their um, uh, morality questioned. When did this occur? That happened in, in Dunedin, uh, 1893. It was, and it was the, the girls from the London Gaiety Burlesque Company. It was an English company, um, and, and they were performing uh, throughout New Zealand with uh, a rather bawdy stage show. Well, bawdy by their standards, it would not be bawdy by our standards. Um, but the show opened uh, in the uh, Princess Theatre in Dunedin on May the 27th of 1893. Um, and the editor of uh, a, a local newspaper, uh, I think it was a weekly newspaper called the Otago Worker, uh, a gentleman by the name of Samuel Lister. Uh, he was uh, not impressed by the young women performing in the show. He thought they were uh, rather unsavory types and cast some aspersions uh, uh, upon their character. At which point, um, the ladies of the London Gaiety Burlesque Company took offence, and they decided that he should uh, apologise um, for the the, the harm and uh, casting aspersions upon their characters. So they set off to his office in South Dunedin, demanded he reprint an attraction, a retraction, uh, which he re- he refused to do, um, and they had armed themselves with horsewhips. Now. To be fair, they were uh, horsewhips from the show, so I guess they weren't <laughs> the real uh, horsewhips. But they, they cornered him in his office, and when he refused to uh, apologise and print a retraction, they started to attack him with the whips and gave him a jolly good whipping. Things got out of hand a little bit after that because um, uh, some of um, Samuel Lister's staff came to his assistance, at which point 
uh, some of the workers, uh, the stagehands from the burlesque company, uh, entered the building and they entered into the fray as well. So they finished up smashing the windows and wrecking the office and throwing printer's ink all around the place. Um, in due course, the local policeman turned up and uh, he arrested some of the, the culprits and took them off to the police courts. In those days, uh, they had the police the police courts where you appeared virtually straight away and were sentenced. When they turned up in the police court, eventually uh, Samuel Lister withdrew his complaints against them uh, and uh, every, it, it, the, uh, the, the attackers were, were set free. Um, but it just showed, I think, the how things, uh, how our morality and attitudes have changed uh, since 1893. A fracas that is indeed. I wonder why he withdrew it. And was this all covered? Was it the ODT or the Evening Star? Which paper was it? No, it was a paper called the Otago Worker. Ah. I, I understand it was a weekly newspaper okay. published in South Eden. Well, I hope this was front page news. Was it not? I'm not sure that it was, actually. It was reported because the, the um, paper's past records of the Otago Daily Times does, does report, um, ha- have a report from their reporter on the, on the, on, on the presence um, of, of these people in the police court. And it was all rather lighthearted in the, in the end. Uh, look, it's interesting how the book is laid out. I know you were keen to do it chronologically, but um, it's been divided um, thematically, and there's a lot of... Uh, maritime stories in here the first the first is the all at sea section do you want to talk about the wreck of the general grant uh, it still tantalizes divers today looking for the gold etc there's still expeditions that happen but what happened to the people on board tom that was a terrible terrible story and it really brings out when, when you read the details of what happened to them and, and i think when you read the story in the book about what those people, the crew and the and the passengers went through on that ship. It was heading from um, uh, from Australia to uh, London, um, and it was uh, running along in the south of uh, well, south of New Zealand in the um, um, in the Roaring Forties, which was uh, the route that the sailing ships used to follow because of the strong winds. But uh, of course, there was danger in that because of the the icebergs uh, that tended to float around the seas, and there were a lot of islands that, um, like the Auckland Islands, which weren't accurately charted. So they were heading um, towards uh, London, sailing along well, uh, but then the wind died away. Um, but while the wind died away the wave surge kept happening and it kept carrying the ship towards what turned out to be Auckland Island. And I I, I just can't help but um, think how horrifying it must have been for those on board the ship to know that there was nothing they could do. They tried everything they could to get some wind in the sails, but there was no wind. And the ship was just swept gently towards the Auckland Islands until finally it crashed onto the rocks. And then it was swept uh, w- with the surge of the tide. It was swept into a, a cavern uh, on the Auckland Island. Um, and the huge swell of the seas and the rising tide kept lifting the ship up and its masts kept hitting the roof of the cavern, causing the rocks to crash down on top of the ship and the poor people underneath all those rocks. It also drove the masts down through the bottom of the ship. So eventually the ship began to sink. Um, by this stage, it was dark. Can imagine being trapped in, in a cavern on a, on a ship with, with no means of rescue. Um, some of them did manage to, to get into the, to the, to the lifeboats. Um, a lot of those were, were lost and a lot of people did, did drown. But finally, in the next morning, um, they were able to make their way to, um, uh, a nearby island, uh, where they spent some time. And then finally, they did reach Auckland Island. Now, then they got stuck on Auckland Island. They were there for 20 months. 
Occasionally, it must have been so um, very disappointing. Occasionally, they could see ships passing by in the distance, but they were never able to draw attention to themselves. Eventually, they were found. Um, now, that, that the shipwreck happened in 1867, uh, and they were finally rescued in January of 1868, 1868 after 20 months uh, being stranded on the island. The thing that really appealed to me, that story is generally well known, uh, as you said, Catherine. The thing that fascinated me about that story was their desperate attempt to get rescue. And four of the men, uh, rather, um, left the Auckland Islands heading towards New Zealand uh, in in an open boat. Uh, imagine in those seas in a, in a whale boat um, trying to make your way to New Zealand. They, they had no means of navigation. So it was all just um, in the hand of the gods, as it were. When they left the Auckland Islands, they had a, a nice, uh, brisk, southwesterly breeze behind them, which would have carried them um, very close towards New Zealand, where they thought New Zealand was. But when they left, unfortunately, um, the wind changed, and the wind then blew, would have been blowing them towards the, uh, the northeast, which would be blowing them away from New Zealand. And those men were never, never seen again. Goodness. I, their courage. It's just, I think, is amazing. The courage and, and um, resilience when you think you might just curl up after a while and, and, and give up, right? Um, now, let's stay Absolutely. with transport of another kind, uh, an airship. Now, what were the plans to bring big airships from England to New Zealand? Was this the same style of thing as the Hindenburg, or what are we talking about? It's exactly the same as the Hindenburg, except the Hindenburg was German, and the, these plans, it was called the R101 uh, airship, and it was uh, uh, the what they called the Imperial the imperial airship scheme they came up with it, the british government came up with it originally in 1921 and the idea was to have a whole fleet of airships servicing the empire um proving flights were supposed to uh, get underway in 1930 there was a, a number of uh, flights that were um carried out successfully with these huge hydrogen-filled um, balloons. And that, of course, was the problem, that the hydrogen is highly flammable and it takes very little to uh, to set uh, hydrogen uh, alight. But the plan was that New Zealand, the service between London and New Zealand would have been an extension of the London-Australia service, but the Australians pulled out and the finished, and that, so it never actually went ahead here. But the uh, British airship mission came to New Zealand in uh, 1927. They landed in, in Auckland from the ship uh, in, in Auckland and uh, they, they toured the country looking for appropriate sites. The, the type of site needed uh, for an airship was very specific. It had to be uh, in a certain distance from the sea and at a certain height because of the uh, complications of airship operation. And finally, they settled that the ideal site um, was... Um, um, uh, with the, oh, now it's gone there. Oh, Hakia. They, they finally decided Ohakia was the ideal site for that. Um, the, the service was planned to begin with uh, proving flights from um, England to New Zealand in 1930, and they were planning on beginning um, weekly services uh, by 1935. The British, uh, along with members of the um, Empire, we're going to be building 20 of these airships. They were huge things, as you can see in the photos in the book. They're enormous things. And the cost of these uh, things was £275,000, which was an enormous sum of money in those days. Interestingly, when they finally um, scrapped the, the idea, uh, which which happened uh, in 1930, 
after the crash of one of the airships, R101, that was on a proving flight to uh, Egypt. It crashed uh, in France, killing 48 of the 50-odd, 54 people that were on board it. Um, after that, um, the, the whole scheme was cancelled, and they sold that £275,000 airship. It was uh, dismantled and sold for scrap for something Goodness. like £500. Goodness. And that was the end of the airship scheme. It finally came to the whole the whole idea of airships, of course, came to an end uh, in 1937 with the crash of the Hindenburg in uh, New Jersey. Lots um, of um, and- yeah, lo- lots of social history in here too, Tom, um, from the National Sparrow Shooting Competition, where an introduced species was then found to be eating all the crops, through to a family, an entire family lost on a, on a, in a landslide or, or on the West Coast. So a lot of personal social history in here as well. What struck you the most over, you know, the 200 years of, of history that you delved into here? Uh, what, as, as you got yeah. deep into it, what do you reflect on the most? Just what you... What you uh, commented on there, the the, the the social changes happened in New Zealand over those uh, over those years, from things like the um, the inquiry into uh, immoral be- behaviour that uh, took place in uh, in uh, eighteen eighteen uh, eighties uh, in the eighteen eighties. There was a real horror about prostitution and the problems of uh, venereal diseases and uh, and so on. Um, but it's the social change that, that has taken place from from those early days when. Um, when males ruled and um, um, white males in particularly ruled, and there was this this belief that uh, if you were English, um, you know, you were sort of a, a cut above everybody else. Um, and also the impact of religion. Um, religion had a huge impact on uh, pioneering New Zealand, um, and that's reflected in a lot of the stories in the book. And I think that's probably the biggest change uh, that I think... Uh, that I noticed in this was those social changes from the 1840s through to the current day. Very good, Tom. I know you've got enough for a second volume. Thank you for sharing the first, Tom Clark. And the book is called Our Untold Stories, Extraordinary Tales from New Zealand's Past. It's published by Bateman Books, Tom Clark, the author.